Good morning. I'm Susan Marcinkus, and I'm your worship associate today. And it's my pleasure to welcome you to the Williamsburg Unitarian Universalist online worship service. Our greeter today is Susan Childs. Our other worship leaders today are our minister, Reverend Laura Horton Ludwig, and our assistant director of music, Dave Robbins, with a special performance by WUU member, David Welch. If you're on Zoom, at this time, you might want to change to speaker view so that you'll have a better view of whoever is speaking. Our AV technicians will be muting and unmuting you as needed. If you'd like to follow along with the order of service, I invite you to visit wuu.org to download a copy. You'll find the link right next to the Zoom and the YouTube links. If you're visiting today, we invite you to share your name in the chat if you like, and anything you'd like us to know about you. We're glad you're here. And if you're not yet on our mailing list and would like to join to keep up with opportunities to connect, serve, and grow, please fill out our online visitor form at wuu.org. It's right underneath the link to the download for the order of service. And now let's have some music. Our prelude today is by the contemporary white British German composer, Max Richter, who, who one critic described as the architect of a post-minimalist electronic re revolution at the borderlands of classical music. What to say. This is our own Dave Robbins. Thank you, Dave. And again, welcome. 
We are happy that you joined us via live stream audio, video, or Zoom. Whether you have come seeking comfort, encouragement, or inspiration, you belong here. You are seen here. Even if you are joining by phone and we cannot see you physically, if you're a visitor, we offer you a special welcome and a warm thank you for joining us online today. Now I invite you in saying our welcoming words. Please, as you say these words, speak them to each other and know that we are connected across the distance. The words are pasted in the Zoom chat. Let's say them in unison. Folks on Zoom, we will unmute you so that you can hear you. <coughs> Thanks, Susan. Our call to worship today comes to us from the Reverend Leslie Takahashi. She's a UU minister of Japanese and European descent who serves our congregation in Mount Diablo, California. She's also one of our finest leaders in anti-racism work within our association. These are her words. Here in this place of peace, may we find hope. Here in this place of connection, may we find life-giving community. Here in this place of rest, let the unrest of our hearts turn us towards justice. Here in this space made sacred by memories of connection, let us each feel ourselves part of the new that grows from the old in the spiraling unity of years. In the spirit, let us worship together. Thank you. Now please join me in saying the words to light our chalice as we highlight Dave Wilcox today. If you have a chalice or a candle handy nearby, please go ahead and light it now. Again, we'll unmute you, <clears throat> say the words in unison. We light this, we chalice, light this chalice with the warmth of love, the light of truth, for the energy of action, for the harmony of peace, peace in our hearts, peace in our community. So I want to say just a couple words about where we're going today. You know, these days with so much happening in our world, the pandemic, the racial justice crisis, the run-up to the November election, and all the personal challenges we're facing, we might sometimes find ourselves asking, along with Rabbi Harold Kushner, why do bad things happen to good people? Or even more simply, why is this happening? You know, every religious tradition has to grapple with this kind of question to be able to offer any meaningful response to life. And every human person at some time or another we'll probably find ourselves awake in the dead of night, crying out for answers. Why are these things happening? What does it all mean? And even, is life safe? Can we trust in anything? 
In the Christian tradition, our long ago UU ancestors in faith were part of at that time, there is a whole branch of theology de devoted to these existential questions. It's called theodicy, T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, theodicy, which comes from the Greek theo, God, and dike, um, which means like justice, or sometimes it means a court case. And so theodicy is basically all about trying to defend God or to show how a loving God can coexist with all the evil and sorrow in our world. And again, that's the Christian iteration of a, of a challenge that's really common to all faith, faith traditions, trying to explain why suffering exists. And today here in our congregation and in this faith tradition, there are a whole lot of beliefs that coexist. Some of us believe in God, some of us do not. Some would say it's complicated. But I suspect that no matter what we believe, at some point or another, we all wrestle with these ancient questions. Why is there suffering and how are we to live well with it or at least in spite of it? So today we invite you to sit with these questions a while as we journey together with word and song and silence. Good morning. I had the opportunity this week to chat with Reverend Laura. Um, and one of the things that we chatted about was a female um, theologian. And her name was Lucy Barnes. And she lived a long time ago. Um, she was born in New Hampshire and um, grew up quite a bit in Maine, in the Portland area. So this is a person that in my imagination was very used to cold weather. So Reverend Laura and I talked about a couple things about her, about this Lucy Barnes person. She was a universalist because you'll remember the Unitarians and the Universalists only joined in 1961. And, and Lucy Barnes um, unfortunately died in 1809. And I believe she was only 29 when she died. Um, but she was a letter writer because that was one of the best ways to keep in touch with people that you were not near at that time, right? So she wrote a bunch of letters. And one of the things that she loved to do was to write um, letters of encouragement, um, giving some of her theological advice to her friends and to her family. There's one piece that she wrote to her brother that I want to read just a couple sentences to you in a moment. And she wrote poems. And she wrote all these beautiful things. And you know, one of the things that Reverend Laura and I were talking about and that so impressed me, and I recognized immediately as a universalist thing is, you know, this terrible thing happens. Lucy dies and it's awful. And her family misses her and her friends miss her. And, um, and why does that happen? I don't know, I don't have a clue. But what her friends and family decide to do with this awful thing is to take her letters and her poems and what she's written and to publish her work as a book. And, you know, on one of the first pages of this book that's um, published in Portland, Maine, um, it says, although she's dead, she speaketh. So they took this terrible thing and they brought her to life again. With, with love and, and, and with this sense of um, 
communal knowledge of a person. You know, like no one person had the key at that point, but all of the friends together and all of the family um, took the things that she wrote and brought her back to life in a sort of way, which I recognized immediately as such a universalist thing to do. Um, and I'll talk more about that in a moment. I want Lucy to speak for herself, and I'm just gonna read you this really quickly. She says this, my dear brother, I fear you look too much upon the dark side of your situation. There's a note in this letter that says that her brother's sick. I fear you look too much upon the dark side of your situation. While there is yet room for hope, oh, destroy not the probability of recovery by the indul indulgence of melancholy, of melancholy and the fear of what may happen. This world appears to be full of troubles crosses and disappointments, and yet again, it can boast of innumerable pleasures and delights, and not too much to be dejected by its frowns, nor too much elevated by its smiles, is the noble art we ought to learn if we have any desire to continue in it. Which sounds pretty Buddhist to me, this noble art of finding balance, you know? And, and the part of that that's so connected with my life, I'll share, um, I was part of the Ohio Meadville Young Adults group years ago. And one of the things we did was we played a game, and you might have played this too, where basically the group tells a story to each other, but they do it in writing. And so the person who is doing the writing of the story can only see the line just before it, and then the paper gets folded over, and this story kind of unfolds, and then we read it out as a group afterwards. And so one of the things that the um, young adults in the Ohio Meadville district did for me when I was getting ready to move away, and I should tell you, as I was getting ready to leave Cleveland, I was um, really excited, but also scared because I was moving to a whole new state. I didn't know anybody. Um, I was going to New Jersey, and um, that was so far away from home, and I was going to do new stuff, and it was just all this unknown stuff. What was it going to be like? What was the apartment going to be like? I didn't know. And so there were parts of it that were exciting and wonderful, and there were parts of it that were a little scary. And so what the group decided to do was to write a story about what it would be like in New Jersey in this new job for me. And, you know, I took that story with me and I put it up on a cork board and I had it there and I still have it. It was this beautiful representation of love, this creativity of a story. Um, and so how, how does that relate to universalist theology? For me, this is what it means. We are your friend and we love you. And we can't control that this bad stuff does happen because of course it does. And why does it happen? I don't know. But you have friends and you have community. And in that community, we can do nice things for each other. And that stalwart um, friendship, especially you know, back in the 1700s and in the early 1800s for universalist women, there was this theme of women lifting up other women and a opportunity to be frank and um, real with each other in a way that wasn't socially appropriate at other times. And I think that that spirit of um, friendship really has carried through in the theology of universalism 
until today, a, a theme that we can recognize um, even in our young adult groups and, and beyond. And so I offer this, you know, Reverend Laura is asking this big question, why, why does bad stuff happen? Gosh, I wish I knew. But what I do know is that we can help each other. We can help each other through it and we can help each other after it. And that help and that friendship and that community can make all the difference. So, you know, sometimes when I tell like an Aesop's fables, um, you know, it ends with a, you know, what's the moral of the story? And I think the moral of the story for this one is, here's your opportunity or your reminder, contact a friend and just say hello and tell them how much they mean to you. Blessed be. Thank you, Austin. I have a short reading for you today from Barbara Peskin called First Fire. Barbara Peskin is a white lesbian UU minister and poet whose work blends humanist, atheist spirituality with a keen sense of wonder. This poem comes from her book of poetry called Morning Watch, and it's called First Fire. High above you the sun shines, and beyond its glory the stars of night hide in the daytime sky. Below your feet, worms. Out of their bodies remake the soil. At the center, the earth still shimmers with its first fire. Somewhere between the stars and the earth's core, we live and weep, we ask and laugh and answer. How can we not be amazed let the light and darkness bless each other and bless us. Amen. Now there'll be a musical interlude, Wayfaring Stranger, which is a traditional folk song by David Welch. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger. I'm traveling through this world of woe, yet there's no sickness, toil, nor danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there no more to roam. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. I know dark clouds will gather round me. I know my way is rough and steep, yet golden fields lie just before me. Where God's redeemed shall ever sleep. 
I'm going there to see my mother. She'd said she'd meet me when I come. I'm only going over Jordan. I'm only going over home. I want to wear a crown of glory when I get home to that good land. I want to shout salvation story in concert with the blood-washed band. I'm going there to meet my Savior to sing her praise forevermore. I'm just a-going over Jordan. I'm just a-going over home. Dave Welch, thank you so much for sharing your music with us. It's wonderful to hear your voice. Now I want to invite everybody to join in a spirit of meditation, a spirit of reflection and prayer, as I offer these words by Martha Kirby Capo. She's a white American UU poet who feels a deep connection to earth-based spirituality. As we enter this shared sacred time, let us renew both our commitment and our covenant. There are those among us who have endured a loss in the past week. May their hope be uplifted again in this community of faith. May they find renewed strength. There are those among us who have wrestled with questions that seem to have no answer this past week. May they find sanctuary in this community of faith. There are those among us who have cherished an unexpected joy in the past week. May their gladness be celebrated. And as we commit to continue our free and responsible search for truth, may we covenant to honor the many paths that have led us to this community. And as these intentions begin to settle into our hearts and minds and spirits, let us lift up the joys and sorrows and concerns that we are holding today for our country and for everyone who is struggling in this difficult time. Let us offer our love and our faithful actions to make things better as we are able. To everyone in California affected by the devastating fires there, may they, may they be safe 
may they be far away from harm's way. And close to home, Millie Abel invites your thoughts and prayers for her sister, Elaine Wozni. Her sister is recovering well from a stroke and Millie would appreciate your healing thoughts today. And I wonder who you are having on your heart today. There might be someone in your life who's experiencing a great joy or maybe someone who's going through a difficult time. And I invite you, if you're on Zoom, to type their name into the chat. And if you are not on Zoom, just hold that person in your heart and know that we will be holding the gathered community as well. And as we hold all these loved ones and all the cares and joys that have been named and remain in our hearts unspoken, I invite you to add your own silent prayers and meditations for the gathered community and the world. Amen and blessed be. Our centering hymn today is by the Jewish American poet Louis Untermeyer and the Irish composer Robert N. Quayle. May nothing evil cross this door.
Thank you, Dave. Each week this summer, WU members are offering a series of From the Heart Reflections on Racial Justice. And this week, we hear from Ben Thacker-Gwaltney. Thank you, Ben. Good morning, everyone. I'm excited to have this chance to share a From the Heart with you. Um, this morning, I want to talk about how racism affects COVID-19 um, and how it affects people differently based on race. It reveals a lot about institutional racism or racism that's built in to the structure of our society. In a study by the Urban League, they used data from Johns Hopkins that indicates that black Americans are being infected by COVID at three times the rate of white Americans. And they die twice as often from it compared to whites. Latinx people are infected at an even higher rate than black Americans. Black and brown bodies are sickening and dying with this virus much more often than white bodies. Why would this be happening? Our doorbell rang a few weeks ago, and it was someone from FedEx delivering a package. I was close to the door, so I actually got up and answered it, and a person was standing there. She said, Mr. Gwaltney? I said, yes, and she handed me my package. She also said to me, that's my name too, Gwaltney. I almost never find anyone who has my name. That's also my experience. I only know Gwaltneys who are my relatives, close or distant. I said, where are you from? Newport News was her reply. Only half an hour from where I grew up, which was over in Smithfield. The delivery person was a black woman. The shocking thought that ran through me at that moment was, one of my ancestors owned hers and gave them his name at emancipation. I don't know if she had this thought as well because right away she was back to her deliveries. We didn't get a chance to talk. So right there in those two stories, the institutional structure of racism touches and is touched by a personal racial exchange. The first relates how black and brown people are bearing the burden of this virus. And the second shows how an interpersonal connection that evoked a memory of racial trauma. The second explains the first. Why does COVID sicken and kill people of color so much more often? Because a black woman goes door to door delivering packages to a white man whose family probably owned hers 150 years ago. As my family exploited her family's free labor, we made money. The resources that put me through college, bought me my first car, supplied the down payment on my first house, all began to be assembled so they could be passed on to me. What was her family assembling? Not very much other than perhaps PTSD and not to be undervalued, a deep resilience from struggling together to survive. COVID wreaks havoc in communities without access 
to decent and affordable health care. On communities where people work service jobs that demand their physical presence instead of being able to safely telecommute. On communities where larger family networks live together in the same space in order to save money and combine scarce resources. In this society, those are primarily black and brown communities that have been put at a disadvantage by racism, both historically and and in the present. White folks will be tempted to see the problem and say, it's because they don't take care of themselves. I hope that instead, we will see that our advantage has been at their expense that white folks caused this problem and it's white folks responsibility to work on the damage. Thank you, Ben, for that powerful share. Now, each Sunday, we make an offering from the bounty we are blessed to enjoy. We do so in a spirit of generosity and in recognition of our ongoing commitment to serve our world and share our values. If you are joining us for the first time, please feel free to give if you wish, and also know that your presence is gift enough. Today's offering goes to our general operating fund, which supports just about everything we do here. If you'd like to give through our website, please visit wuu.org and click on Give online to WUU. If you'd like to give by text, please text the dollar amount of your gift to 757-500-0688. Again, that's 757-500-0688 and follow the prompts from there. If you prefer to give by check, please mail your check to WUU 3051 Ironbound Road, Williamsburg, Virginia 23185. And we thank you so much. Our offertory music is a song you might know written by the Indigo Girls, Amy Ray and Emily Sailors. They are white lesbian singer-songwriters from Decatur, Georgia, who have been playing together ever since high school. Song is called Closer to Fine, performed by Dave Robbins. I'm trying to tell you something about my life. Maybe give me inside between black and white. has a call that's hard to hear
answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line and the less I seek my source for some definitive the closer I am to find yeah the closer I am to find yeah and I went to see the doctor of philosophy with a poster of Rasputin and a beard down to his knee doctor I went to the mountains I looked to the children I drank from the fountains there's more than one answer to these questions pointing me in a crooked line and the less I seek my source for some definitive the closer I am to find yeah. closer I Dave Robbins, I hope you heard us all singing along somehow. I was singing loud to that. You are amazing. Ben Thacker Gwaltney, thank you so, so deeply from the bottom of my heart. Y'all are wonderful. So I, I'm going to get a little brainy on you today. I, I want to do a kind of a intellectual type sermon um, going into our Unitarian Universalist history in service to those big questions that we started talking about earlier today. Why do bad things happen? And especially in this moment when we are all grappling with structural racism, with this pandemic, and with the very future of our country, sometimes I find myself asking, why is this happening? 
Now, I know that there are folks who do not feel moved to spend too much time on this kind of question. Some of us would rather just get going and work on fixing things, and we absolutely need people like that. So if that's you, if you just want to get going, we affirm and we celebrate and we thank you. In fact, that drive to focus on making things better rather than worrying about the whys, that is actually one of the classic Unitarian Universalist theological responses to that question of why do bad things happen? And I'll look back to that in a little bit. But meanwhile, for anyone who has felt disoriented, heartsick, or anxious about what's going on in our world, for anyone who has woken up shivering in the middle of the night, haunted by fears of what may be, I think this is a good time to call on our ancestors in faith to remember that they also struggled to understand what it meant to be living in this beautiful, painful, heartbreaking, and often joyful world. And we can remember that they came up with some answers that helped many of them to sleep at night and find some hope and purpose for the new day. As the Indigo Girls sing, there's more than one answer to these questions. And so without further ado, I'm going to do a brief recap of what some of our Unitarian Universalist answers believed about why suffering exists in this world. And I want to start with the earliest Unitarians in this country. 200 years ago, the first generation of Unitarians believed pretty simply that life is a school. Life is a school, and we are here to learn and grow into better people. They thought bad things happen just as good things do so that we can learn from it all. William Ellery Channing, you've probably heard of him before here. William Ellery Channing was a white minister who grew up poor in Rhode Island and made it to Harvard and came of age at the time when Unitarianism was just crystallizing into a separate denomination. And I want to read to you a quote from his 1819 sermon, Unitarian Christianity, which was a national bestseller in its day that laid out for a whole generation what Unitarianism was all about. I'm going to drop this quote in the chat so you can follow along. Oops, sorry, that didn't quite work. Hold on. Thought I copied. You don't need the giving instructions again. Hang on just a sec. Let's try that again. Almost there. Copy, copy. Paste, paste. Here we go. Okay, so Channing says this, and I've edited it just slightly to update the gendered language that was common in his day. He said, We look upon this world as a place of education in which God is training us by prosperity and adversity, by aids and obstructions, by conflicts of reason and passion, by motives to duty and temptations to sin, by a various discipline suited to free and moral beings for union with God's self and for a sublime and ever-growing virtue in heaven. So, there it is, Channing's notion that was shared by many of his generation, that this world is here as a place of education, and we are being trained by everything that happens to us to be better people, 
closer to the God of the Bible that this generation of Unitarians strongly believed in, um, both in this life and then in the afterlife that they believed would come next. And whether or not you believe in an afterlife today, still, I find myself encouraged. I find myself strengthened by Channing's belief that it is worth it to be brave in the face of suffering, in the face of difficulty. We've had a lot of that lately, and I hope that we will be able to look back on this time and say, that was really hard, but we can be proud of how we got through it, and we have learned something. I think we will be in that spot, and that sounds pretty good to me. But sometimes even that beautiful hope and aspiration that we can grow through suffering, sometimes that might start to feel a little hollow. Sometimes life just feels hard and unfair and, and we might not feel like learning from it, right? So for times like that, I wanna lift up for you one of my own UU heroines, the universalist writer, Lucy Barnes, whom Austin told you about today. Lucy Barnes had a pretty challenging life. She was born in 1780, and her whole life, she was sick with asthma. Over the years, she went through multiple bouts of struggling to breathe before she died of her illness at age 29. So I think that she has earned some right to speak to us about suffering. And I want to quote her, too. I'm going to copy this passage I'm going to share with you. Hang on just a moment. Let's see. Okay, got it copied. So um, this is something that she says in a letter to a friend written around 1805 or so. And again, I ask that you remember that in those days, uh, universalism was a branch of Protestant Christianity. And the universals of those days revered the Bible. They quoted it a lot. So this is Lucy Barnes writing to her friend. I am of opinion that all things are for the best and that they will finally terminate in good. Yet I must acknowledge that whilst endeavoring with my weak and imperfect eyes to discover the benefit arising from the various evils attended upon this life which fall under my own observation, I am frequently led to say with St. Paul, how unsearchable are God's judgments and God's ways are past finding out. So like William Ellery Channing, and, and by the way, he was born just one month after she was, Lucy Barnes believed that the suffering we experience is sent by a loving God for our benefit. In another letter, she quotes these lines of poetry. She says, by love directed and in mercy meant, our trials suffered and afflictions sent. But she really understands that sometimes it is hard to hold on to that faith. And she says in the passage I quoted, she says she doesn't really understand why God makes us suffer. But she also believes that her God has a broader perspective and sees more clearly than we do. And it's okay that we don't understand right now. Because along with her fellow universalists, she also believed that she and every other person who has ever lived or will ever live would be with her God in heaven after they died. And there, our pain and suffering would be over and we would know nothing but joy. Today, 
we might have very different beliefs about what happens after death. And if nothing else, most of us are probably pretty sure that we don't know for sure. But still, I really resonate with her idea that it's okay that life does not always make sense to us. It's okay that our minds are really very small and maybe there is a bigger picture that we can't grasp with these human bodies and human brains. I wonder about that too. So let's move on for now, because I have two more shifts that I want to really quickly trace for you. So we've talked about Lucy Barnes and William Ellery Channing, and I want to jump forward one generation after them to the transcendentalists, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller, Henry David Thoreau, all those Unitarian heavyweight thinkers of New England. Did you know that Emerson and Thoreau were reading Hindu scriptures in English translation all the way back in the 1840s. Did you know that? I think that's so interesting. And in the next generation after that, you might have heard of a guy named Jenkin Lloyd-Jones. Jenkin Lloyd-Jones was a white Midwestern Unitarian who was born in Wales, eventually made it over to Wisconsin, and eventually he would become the uncle of Frank Lloyd Wright. Little known fact. Jenkin Lloyd-Jones was a Unitarian minister who helped organize the first ever global interfaith gathering in 1893. That was the Parliament of the World's Religions, and it happened in conjunction with the Chicago World's Fair. It brought together not only Christians, Jews, and Muslims, but also Buddhists, Hindus, Jains, and even Baha'is. So I know I've just given you a whole lot of names and dates, but the key takeaway here is that for nearly 200 years, our ancestors in this faith tradition have been asking and learning about what other religions teach about the big questions, including what we're focused on today. Why is there suffering? And there is a whole lot we could say here about how our UU theology has been shaped by this love of world religions. But today, I want to raise one speculation. I wonder, though I do not know for sure, I wonder whether Buddhist ideas about suffering might have shaped the religious outlook of the earliest humanists in our tradition. And I'll tell you why I wonder that. There's a famous story in the Buddhist tradition about the meaning of suffering. Once we are told, the Buddha said, suppose you have been shot by a poison arrow. Luckily, there is a doctor there and the doctor is about to take the arrow out. But you say, wait a minute, before you take out that arrow, I want to know who shot it, where they came from, how old they were, and how fast the arrow was going. And the Buddha says, does that make any sense? Shouldn't you just let the doctor take the arrow out? And he means by this, there's a lot of philosophical questions we could get into, but wouldn't it be better to just focus on what we can do to stop suffering? So I love how practical that tradition is. Do not worry about the why of suffering, just help stop it, just take the arrow out. And that's exactly what many of our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors came to believe as religious humanists, beginning in the late 19th century, with folks like 
Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, who first of all loved interfaith dialogue, and second of all, believed that religion should focus on ethics. The humanist movement, which he helped inspire, has always taught that the most important thing is to do good now. In response to the question of why is there suffering, why do bad things happen, a humanist might answer, there is no answer. There's no logic to it, at least none that we can understand. It just is. But we are human beings with compassionate hearts and minds, and we should do whatever we can to stop the suffering of the world. I'm gonna paste another quote in for you. Let's see, let me get back to the chat here. Okay, so this is a quote from the American Humanist Association. Um, they put it like this, humanism without theism or other supernatural beliefs affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good. And whether you are a theist or not, can we not all agree that human beings can and should lead ethical lives that make a positive difference in the world? Can we not all agree on that? Just take out that poisoned arrow. Just take it out and leave the world better for your actions. Well, we've just covered a lot of historical ground from the early Unitarians who taught that suffering helps us learn morality to the early Universalists who believed that everything would be made right in God's love after we die to the transcendentalists who dove into the teachings of Asian traditions, to the humanists who tell us simply to do good where we are. All these ideas have something to offer to our minds and to our curiosity about this world and the people in it. But my deepest hope is that you will find something here that also speaks to your spirit, some crumb of hope or maybe even a banquet that will sustain you when your spirits are low, when you wake in the night and wonder what it all means. Remember that we are part of a long and living tradition. We are the descendants of those who have come before and wrestled with these questions in their time. And we are the ancestors of those who will come after. May we leave for them a legacy of love and courage and hope. Amen and blessed be. And we'll close today with a hymn by composer Carolyn McDade, born into a white Southern Baptist family in Louisiana, now a progressive UU activist living in New England, Rising Green. blood doth rise in the roots of yon oak her sap doth run in my veins boundless my soul like the open sky where the stars forever have lain where the stars
side as deep as the sea beating my heart sounds the measures of old that of love's eternity that of love's that of love's that of love's eternity I feel the tides as they answer the moon rushing on a far distant sand winging my song is the wind of my breast and my love blows over the land and my love and my love and my love blows over the land my foot carries days of the old into new our dreaming shows the way wondrous our faith settles deep in the earth rising green to bring a new day rising green rising green rising so much, Dave. Well, the time has come to extinguish our chalices. Now let us say the words to extinguish the chalice, and we invite you to blow out your candle at the same time. We'll paste the words in the Zoom chat, and again we'll say them in unison. We extinguish this and now I invite you to hold out your hands and remember that we are connected as we hear again the words of Barbara Peskin. High above you, the sun shines. And beyond its glory, the stars of night hide in the daytime sky. Below your feet, worms out of their bodies remake the soil. And at the center, the earth still shimmers with its first fire. Somewhere between the stars and the earth's core, we live and weep and ask and laugh and answer. How can we not be amazed? Let the light and darkness bless each other and bless us. Amen. Amen.